Hey guys, welcome back. We're on Habits of Normal Success podcast, episode 13. So I have 13. This is going to be my 13th episode under the belt. I'm very excited to have the legend, the <laughs> one and only Sehat with me. So Sehat uh, works at Omnicom um, and managing partner recently. Congratulations on the promotion and on, on making it here. <laughs> th- th- thank, you for, thank you for being a guest. Uh, OMG Ethnic. Group, yes, right? correct. Yes. yes, yes. Do you want to tell us, and then we'll we'll go back to the initial topics yes. very quickly, like what it is that you do at uh, OMG. So uh, it's basically a unique division. So we deal with what we call multicultural marketing, um, and the role of it is to drive diversity and inclusion internally from a um, ethnicity and religion perspective sort of celebrating events and making sure our staff are um, knowledgeable of different ethnicities and religions. And on the client side, making mm-hmm. client work um, more diverse and inclusive. So making sure that we think about people who may not be reached through mainstream media, uh, people who might have different uh, behaviours to the norm, uh, that sort of stuff, basically. Yeah. And it's important to highlight also how Sarah and I know each other, which I think is the is the coolest part. So when I came to London, which is now a long five years ago, um, I started as an intern at Mediacom. Um, and then when, once I finished the internship, I was approached uh, uh, by this person here, in <laughs> by this dodgy, dodgy person. Yeah. Uh, no, but Sarah in front of me, and basically, as and he asked me if I wanted to join the insight team. So no. uh, we were working assisting the media planners with um, data research on. Uh, t- well, TGI gets a bit too technical for <laughs> the average listener, but let's say looking at a research into the audience that the client would brief the planners on. Um, so and we spent well, how, how long was it? A good year, know, almost two years. Yeah, no, almost, almost two, two years. Yeah, yeah. Almost two years. So almost two years in the same team. Uh, we had lovely colleagues too. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of them has actually already been on the podcast, Saloni. So Saloni was in our team too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and she's also quite looking forward to this uh, podcast, I believe. So oh, <laughs> no, no pressure. And we we've become really good friends immediately yeah. already, and we stayed friends after that. Um, yeah, and I mean, one of the first things that I, I wanted to ask you generally, and then we'll go back also to your work, is um, back then, and I mean, I don't work with you now, so I'm not able to tell what kind of manager you are now, but we'll, we'll come to that. As in, I really think like you were a great manager, and I think the, the way the whole team fit together in terms of you know how how good we were with each other, and yeah. everyone had, had sort of their own specialty. You know, like Solon was really good with data. I was very good with I don't know exactly what, but there was something. You were you were the philosopher. Yeah, the philosopher, <laughs> the philosopher, the essential role. Um, but yeah, I think a broad question would be, especially because I've been exposed to really good managers like yourself, but also not so good managers. Um, what does like what are the key essential elements of making a good manager? What makes a manager great? Well, um, I think even the term manager is a bit... I, I think it's... When you say a manager, I also think of a leader. So I think manager... Um, so what I mean by leaders, you know, leaders, you, you focus on a vision, what you need to do, try to empower people. Whereas as managers, it's more about directing, more process focus. It's a bit like leaders sort of... Point they do direction. the right yeah. thing. Mm. Whereas managers do the things right. Yeah. Um, and I think as a manager like or that. lead of a team, yeah. Yeah? I like that. It's <laughs> a good definition. Um, you need to have a bit of both because you need to have a vision, but then you have to have the management skills to get things done along the way. Um, coming back to me in terms of management, I think I've changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Every role I've been to, the last seven, seven, eight years where I manage people, it, I've adapted them as well. Yeah. I think at Mediacom, I mean, I was very people focused and I think that's, every, every manager should have a leader, manager, whatever you want to call them. Um, at Mediacom, it was interesting because we had a lot of characters in the team. Yeah. So different characters, that's yeah. why I called you the philosopher and then yeah. we have Simone, which was more of the what I would call a data geek, mm-hmm. um, although she's in a different um, 
role now. Uh, but then we had the we had Saloni, who I you know is is the research researcher of the team. But as a manager, I think it's understanding what people excel on, what they're good at. Yeah. But also looking at what they're not what they need to improve, not what they're not good at, and working, finding the balance of that. But I think within management, then it also comes to managing the top yeah. and the bottom. Um, I think at Mediacom, I was really good at the bottom side. Mm. And I always fought for my team, no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, we still spent two years there. But I think as, as managers, you need to just Think about what you want the team to achieve and then work with individuals. I think what, what, what a lot of people forget that everyone is different. Yeah. You could put a management style and put an authority on it. You do need to have that as yeah. well. But I think you need to do it in a way that's also adapted from person to person, which I understand a lot of people don't want to do because it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, rather than having one way of managing. One size fits all. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. though. It's, it's, it's an easier way of doing it. But I think those teams will always suffer and you'll never, you'll never succeed. Yeah. Because if you're, if you're not empowering who you work with, if they don't feel part of the team, they'll just do what they need to do to get by. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you do it the other way... Um, you'll just get disconnected people who hate what they're doing and and don't like you. Um, I mean, not everyone will like you anyways, but it's more about... How do you... That, that's so, Sorry to jump mm. in, because that's an interesting bit. How do you deal with the people who don't like you? Because that, for, me, for instance, I remember just as a small, um, small story, let's just put it mm. that way. When I was working at PSI, um, I managed... I had the chance to manage some people, and... It was a really positive experience for me. I never managed anyone before. Um, really, really still good friends with uh, with them, and it was really like it, it empowered me and enabled to to learn. Oh, actually, I'm you know I like doing this. I'm pretty good at it, given the feedback that I was receiving. And I remember that a colleague um, told me, you know, you're you're good and you're liking it because you have someone who's easy to manage and someone who's really yeah. good. But try that with someone who's really difficult to manage, someone who might not like you might not respect you then it's a complete different picture so my question is if you've had that if you've had that experience how do you deal with trying to manage or you know trying to get the the maximum potential out of someone who Mm. you know might might be a very difficult person might not like you on a personal level for instance yeah i think that's where you really learn proper management and leading leading people because did happen to me a lot in the past where I was either handed over people that I that didn't believe in what I did or didn't have the same vision or we were just completely different. Mm-hmm. If you asked me five, six years ago, I would probably say I would, even when I recruited people, I try to get people like me. And that's still the case with most people. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, I try to get people who are not like me because yeah. that's where... I, I learn the most and where I can teach the most. Yeah. Uh, from a management perspective, it's a lot more difficult. Uh, it's, in, it's more challenging, let's not call it difficult. And the way I approach it is I learn stuff, they, they learn new things, but more about understanding what really makes, what, what, what makes them challenging to me. It could be that they want to do certain things in a certain way. And then that, from a leadership perspective, that teaches me how to sell ideas into those people. Yeah. It's a bit like having a difficult client. Uh, you know, everyone wants an easy client that get by, <laughs> but if you have a difficult client, you have to find different ways to... They, they push you in a certain way to find new ways to respond to them, for, learn new things, challenge yourself. Exactly. And I think... Everyone is different. Everyone has a different management style. And with those people who are different to you, it'll always be difficult. It can be a cultural difference. It could be um, different views on life and management. Yeah. It could be personal lives are different. 
and it affects your work as well. Um, but my recommendation would be to to always, you know, it's um, what we call unconscious bias, isn't it? You always go with the people that that are like yeah. you. But if you break that seriously, I've learned it myself, and I've made mistakes. I've even um, my previous roles raised my voice. So. Um, um, you know, having short temper was my was my has always been my challenge throughout life. Um, but those people taught me to manage it. For instance, as an example, um, it's like I said, it's there's no one size that yeah. fits all. So you have to sort of see what their issues are, or why, and be honest with them as well. I think transparency is key as well. If you're if you don't like the person, again, they're not your client. Yeah. I'm not saying go to go in and tell them why you don't like them or mm-hmm. but be transparent in an, in a, in a way that doesn't come across as arrogant or rude. Yeah, in a professional way basically. Yeah, exactly. Find differences. It could be, you know, some people like even with people for instance, you might find people that need a lot of direction that want you to tell them exactly what to do and how. But then you love others, they want to do things, you just want to tell them what yeah. needs to be done or where we want to get to, and they'll find a way to do it. Yeah. Um, a bit like, you know, some people like micromanaging, uh, and depending on what job and task you yeah, do, it's just, you know, it's just adapting. I think that's mm-hmm. what it is. Um, I mean, obviously, my next question is relevant only up until a certain point because we've worked together for quite some time, but it was quite some time ago. (laughs) Um, And I mean, the only contact we have now is not necessarily on a professional basis, but more on a personal basis. But since, I mean, these podcasts are never really about me, not that I want to make this about (laughs) me, but, you know, a little little stroking a bit of my ego. I mean, if that's a positive thing, but um, to just understand compared to, you know, the person you first met, when I when we first met at Mediacom, I even remember still that you know I was I mean I was quite late with starting to work. It was 28. I'd studied a lot. Yeah. And it was an internship, and I remember that uh, I told one of my best friends like, oh yeah, so uh, you know I, I met this guy today, and he offered me a job in Insta Team, but um, I don't know about Insta Team. I told him I would think about. It. He's like, are you an idiot? Like, take the job. Like, you're 28. Take the job. So. The question being, long story short, as in how have you seen me uh, sort of change? What what kind of changes have you seen in me compared to when I first started and when you then left Mediacom compared to now, for instance? If there's anything yeah. that you can sort of... I, I, I even remember the first <laughs> meeting. We had it on the balcony. Yes. Yeah, and yes, 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 on those really weird chairs. Because yeah. um, by then I was, from myself, I mean, my the way I work is... Put the expectation low and then deliver yeah. it. But I think with you, what I've realized, a lot of people, I wouldn't say, I don't want to call it a mistake, mm. but a lot of people, you know, go down the route of academic uh, route and then when they come into the workplace, mm. it's completely different, all the <laughs> politics and stuff you have Definitely. to deal with. Yeah. And what I've seen, obviously, the things that you've done in your life when you look at your CV, it's like you've written books, man. <laughs> you've, you've, you've done two masters. I mean, that's an achievement. I don't think I could do it, for instance, because I'm not, I'm not a book, book smart person. Mm-hmm. Well, if you read my books, I don't think you need to be a book smart person. <laughs> yeah. Even to be able uh, to they're write They're great, it, by the way, read them, but yeah. Uh, long still buy them on Amazon, yeah, Exactly. A long um, time ago, a long time ago. I think you have... Because I think it was a bit difficult initially for you yeah. in life because although you've done loads of stuff yeah. from a within a work environment and it you know, you're age wise as well, you which makes a difference. You you sort of had to start with people who just came out of uni. Yeah. I felt that initially sort of put you off a bit as well. Mm-hmm. But and you were really um, initially reluctant, you know, I'm not a data person. I'm not a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. This is me. I'm a, I'm a writer type of thing. Yeah. But what I've, and you lo- loved your comfort. You still love it. Yeah. As in, you know, you've got a job. You know, you, you just stay there and just hang about. As in, do your job. But yeah. what I've seen, the biggest difference. I think you can now even change in jobs mm-hmm. is a nightmare. It is. But you, and even when you move to the programmatic role. Mm-hmm. 
I thought that would be your biggest challenge, and it was for different reasons. Yeah. Um, but you learn to take big risks, yeah. I think, and also you found your you found what you love as well. You know, you love. You're a people's person. No, no, oh, I'm yeah, serious. The thing is, finding yeah. your professional. Sometimes we exchange looks that yeah. you, you can't see <laughs> on the podcast, but yeah. no, it's true. Um, so, but that's very important yeah. because you you still, you know, like you said, you, you need to learn certain things. To you might be really good at client management, mm-hmm. but you still need to have a little bit of operational of course, thing yeah. as well. And you've you've got that, and I think you've adapted and you find what you love, which which was obvious even from the beginning as a philosopher. <laughs> um, that's why I see you. I think you now you can you take risks that would even make you uncomfortable. You know, changing going from a outdoor man yeah, to programmatic. To programmatic. So that's that's the big biggest change. jump. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how I see it. You sort of up to your game and and became find your professional love. If that makes sense. I mean, it's still I was, similar to I one. had a good role model of someone in front of me who changed jobs a couple of times. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a jumper, yeah, 100%. But I think that's, I usually like comfort as well. Going back, I always took the risk, change yeah. between sectors, jobs, but I've learned the most. I think if you don't change, you don't learn. Yeah, that's true. You could change within the same company as well, but you know, every company you go, you learn different cultures, you meet different people, you work with different clients, and if you move around sectors as well, you move from that silo of, well, I'm a media planner, but you understand what the PR, PR's role is within yeah. paid media, what the earned media plays within that. It's, for me, it's it, like knowledge-wise, I love that. Because you learn full different things, different spectrums, different views, and how they affect business. But if you're if you if you're a comfort lover, you'll stay in your role. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you say that because I do remember when we started uh, in the insight team, and it was definitely also having to do with the fact that I was yeah 28, um, and you know I was I you know I think that. You grow up, especially in Italy, I don't know in Turkey how it is, but that I grew up with this big fat lie in Italy <laughs> where the more you study, the more value you have on the job market. And basically, you know, I did my bachelor's and I did my master's and I was like, oh, why not? Let's do another master's. That was probably also had to do with the fact that, I mean, luckily my family could help me financially. Mm. And also at the same time, it was a bit of a, I don't know if I'm ready yet for the job world, so let's do this other master's. And then you suddenly find yourself at 28, having studied all this stuff and all yeah. these studies, like, oh shit, I actually need to start. Like, I remember clearly having this conversation with one of my best friends when I just started working uh, a media com. And I remember I told him, you know, when, when I'm 30, when I hit 30, I want to be at a certain level of salary, which is not the case. And he, <laughs> and he laughed at me, he laughed at me. He's like, oh no, you'll never have it. And I found it quite depressing, but he was absolutely right because you need to put in the hours, you need to put in yeah. the time. And just for me, the, the lie that was in me was thinking that, oh, you know, you study and boom, you're going to get yeah. a great job. But then the reality facing the sort of harsh reality also of the inside team and what I'd done before as an intern for four months, I think, before I joined the inside team was the fact that I realized, hey, there's so many things just in terms of actual hard skills, Excel, PowerPoint. I mean, still today, and we have an intern here in the office and it's really, really good. And we did a presentation together and all the stuff that I tell him about the presentation is stuff that I learned in my media com times and I learned mm. from you. Like, you know, how to keep consistent. <laughs> you remember like, those days, yeah. yeah how, because those are sort of the essential bricks that yeah. you need because even if you're, again, a managing partner, you need to know how to do a presentation yeah. if you ever need to do one. Hopefully someone else will do it for you, but at the end of the day, you, like, you, need, to, how to, you need to know how to do a good one. And I remember, you know, keep it consistent and the storytelling element and, you know, like the size of the text box and so on. And his was all over the place. And then yeah. we, I sent it back to him like four times. Like, what are you noticing here? What are you noticing? Uh, I think he got a bit frustrated, but then finally we, we managed to get one. 
but no, it's interesting to hear. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing. I mean, it was. Was, was that right? I mean, yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, definitely on the on the being reluctant, I, o I always hated numbers. So for me, the mm -hmm. you know having those spreadsheets with you know t <laughs> uh, TGI index and reach yeah. and creating pie charts, it was like the initial block of oh this is numbers. I don't like that. But then actually no, you know what? Like once I get into it. I remember this is actually like quite straightforward, and you know, I, f I find the, um, let's say, the insights. Yeah. I remember that little vent diagram <laughs> that media comes yeah, the bullseye. <laughs> so, um, finding that, you know, that specific insight in the numbers, I always find it super interesting. I mean, I learned to find it interesting, mm. and that's what you said when you when it's about challenging yourself and stretching yourself, and I think that comes sort of that kind of things happens the most when you do these huge steps yeah. maybe lateral ones not necessarily upward ones but you know going from out of home which is a very old school form of media uh, it's a poster you option a minimum booking period of so and so many weeks if we're talking about the static uh, static out of home and then going to programmatic audio which was a complete brand new world and it was very challenging I mean for these reasons and for other reasons but um, it was really like, oh, you know, am I able to do this or not? And then even if I did stay eventually only around seven to eight months, the fact that today I have a basic understanding of, you know, how programmatic mm. audio works. And at the end of the day, programmatic audio is very similar to programmatic display and programmatic yeah. video. So you know what the turns are and so on. That adds a really good value to the profile that I bring here to Video and that I bring generally if I go to a client meeting yeah. and if someone starts to talk about programmatic audio, I know, okay, who are the providers, who are we yeah. talking to? Um, so yeah, I don't want to make it, this is, <laughs> this is turning into a very, very long thing just about uh, me and being a good manager. But um, yeah, and the last story, which by the way, I told, um, I think it was here with Saloni on the podcast or with Prem Deep, he also used to work at Medicom, um, was, I remember there was that day when, you know, I was, I think I was going to an interview, I remember very clearly, and I said to myself, this is the kind of relationship I want to have with any, any manager that I'll ever have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so Mediacom, obviously, media agency, dressed very chill. I mean, I remember seeing people in flip-flops and tank tops in the summer. So, <laughs> And I remember I came in with a suit because I had this interview for another role. It was towards the end of the inside uh, period. And this lady, the recruiter, told me, yeah, you need to wear a suit. I'm like, well, it's going to be very weird, you know, in the office. Oh, no, you need to wear a suit. <laughs> so I made this decision. I'm like, okay, here I can completely, you know, yeah. bullshit my yeah. way out of this. And I know you, and I know that you're going to read through it and just pretend you went for it. Or I can just say, you know, I have an interview. And that's what I did. And I remember that, I mean, maybe it's also because back then it was also towards the end. I think it was almost like maybe two months or three months the, later you were about, about to leave. leave. Right? Yeah. So I think we were all a bit more relaxed. I wouldn't suggest to anyone listening doing it <laughs> at any time. But um, the fact that I came in, no, actually, I sent you a text. I think I said, oh, by the way, or I told you the day before, tomorrow I'm going to come in with a suit. It's going to look weird, but it's because I have an interview, because of this and that. And you were incredibly chilled. And the yeah. fact that, you know, you, you put the sort of well-being of the person rather than, yeah. you know, what's good for you rather than, oh, you need to stay in this company because yeah. I'm representing this company. That I thought was a really cool thing. Anyway, moving on to next, probably more exciting topic. <laughs> uh, Sarah also became a dad. Now, how many months ago? Eight Oof. months ago? Seven months ago? Nine is going to be ten. Ten months ten ago. Months soon. Yeah. So Zafer, who is Zafir, one of the yeah. coolest babies I've <laughs> ever seen, and I'm really looking forward to meeting him yeah. again soon. Um, I think a really interesting topic, especially for uh, people our age, who you know are becoming fathers and becoming mothers. How is how did paternity go? How is being a dad affecting you at work in a positive, in a negative way? What are the challenges? Well, I'll do a bit of build up first. Yeah. So for myself in particular, just so before Zafar was born, which was, by the way, the best thing ever happened to me, um, we bought a house, had been refurbishing it during pregnancy, had to suck five builders. I was into my new job, learning, uh, again, completely different thing that I've been doing. So I was under a lot of stress. Um, so we literally got into the flat two weeks before he was born, mm -hmm. uh, which came with a lot of issues afterwards. Um, so when he was born, it was an absolute pressure. Like it, the first few weeks in particular, it was shock. You know, you, we literally can't sleep. We spend a week in the hospital, a little bit of, um, I won't go into details, but complicated um, birth. But you know what, when he was born, 
I literally couldn't stop crying. <laughs> Seriously, I literally... I mean, but it was happiness. Um, and first two weeks was a learning curve. And first two weeks, you think, what have I done? <laughs> you love it, but at the same time, there's literally no sleep. You don't know what to do. So this is my wife here. No, no one knows what to do. It's just... You're just trying to, you learn as you go along. Because be, before we had had them, I literally ask everyone, give me advice. <laughs> More or less, I mean, to, to overall summarise it, everyone said every baby is different, every pregnancy mm-hmm. is different. And I've read a few books, lots of things. That was the whole thing. Or, or, I mean, they, they were saying it in details, different mm-hmm. ways. But what they were saying was, there's no, nothing is black and white. No one size fits all. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing is black and white. You know, you want sometimes a bit certainty. Like, if baby does this, you need to do this. Yeah. No. And every baby does things different. So it was a very difficult period. But I mean, my work was quite good. I took two weeks of paternity. Um, How is paternity laws in the UK? As in, is two weeks the maximum, the maximum that you can take? Or could you have taken longer if you had wanted... I think, Mac, no, no, you can take longer so from a basic law perspective. I think they have to give you two weeks, though they don't have to pay you full for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So you can take and get a um, stationary, um, what's it called, stationary um, payment, which mm-hmm. is nothing, basically. Um, but with my company, is quite good, so we get two weeks full pay, and then um, there was actually a guy, uh, a colleague of mine, who I admired, But again, brings a stereotyping as well. I didn't think about it, but he took six months off. Mm-hmm. Uh, shared it with his wife, uh, which next time I am doing 100%. Yeah. Um, but from an um, experience perspective, would I recommend it to anyone? Is in uh, a baby? Absolutely, yes. It's the most difficult thing I've ever mm-hmm. um, come across. But it gives you it gives you a perspective on life. Put it this way, I, I used to do very, very long hours last year. It made me a lot more efficient. As I mentioned previously, it's, it's the year of essentialism. You know, it makes you think and start, your time becomes very important. Because yeah. I don't see him in the morning very often, unless he wakes up early. <laughs> so the only time I have is the evening. Yeah. On normal days, I would work quite late. Um, but for this, I mean, there, there has been a few instances with pitches, X, Y, Z, or additional work. By leave by six at the latest. I feel home. guilty that I'm having you in the podcast and holding you no, away no, no, from this, this, this is like my day off type of thing. Every now and then, I do pop out and do things. Yeah. Um, bathe him. That's my time with him, basically. Mm. Change him, play with him a bit. But that's sort of the highlight of my day every yeah. day but and it made me a lot more efficient i have to leave i i go home and if i really have to do something after we put him to sleep i still do it yeah and from an experience perspective you literally enough a, a friend a colleague of mine because basically i ask everyone give me give me tips give me tips whoever's got kids but it's an experience so it doesn't i wouldn't say it gets It gets easier uh, as the time goes, but it also gets different. Yeah. So, you know, where initially it was trying to feed him. You have to wake him up to feed first weeks, and he wouldn't wake up. What do you do? You get him naked. You try to make him cold, and mm. he wouldn't wake up. Um, we know now it's more about his allergies, and, and you know, the experience changes as you go along, um, but it becomes more enjoyable as they have their character. You yeah. know, if they, as they grow, they have a bit of character. <laughs> they start literally taking the piss at you. Um, but yeah, I love it. I, 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 I moved from your question. What was the question? I no, literally no, started you, you, talking. <laughs> no, but this um, is, I think this is the beauty of yeah. uh, these conversations that like, we just talk like that. But no, you answered them already. As in, I mean, it was mm. just as in, you know, talking about Zafar, how, how it has been and how challenging it has yeah. been. And um, I mean, generally speaking also, but you mentioned that how is sort of paternity leave in the UK, because I know, for instance, when I talk about it with 
Wendy, I know that in the Netherlands it's, it's very different. And in the Netherlands, although they're very progressive on many, many things in terms of uh, maternity and paternity leave, um, it, it's quite old school, as in it's not like actually in the UK, it's a lot better maternity really? and paternity no. leave than it is in the Netherlands. I think in the Netherlands, you get, <coughs> as a dad, you get two days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two days! Yeah, something, Whoa. something on those lines. So, um, as it was just interesting to, you know, have an understanding how it works here. But um, I think w one question is also, I mean, you said, you know, essentialism and yeah. <laughs> uh, making the best of your time, and obviously because the highlight of the day is being with Zafar and being home with him. Do you sometimes compare to before when you know maybe you stayed late because you know you know it's needed for a project or for, for a pitch occasionally? As in, do you now sometimes have a, a moment of guilt where you're like, oh, maybe I'm leaving you know my team, but I'm leaving at six or six thirty mm -hmm. to see Zafer, or the priorities are shifted so much and you're like, you know what, like it's my child, I want to see my child by, and you feel absolutely fine about it, or there's still a bit mm. of conflict in you about this. Kenny, it's, it's balancing it. I think you, um, the quote, you also put it in one of your articles when you had a, uh, one of these podcasts with a friend. Mm -hmm. What was it? It's, it's not waiting for the storm to pass, but it's learning to dance in the rain. Yeah. You know, it's it like... It was a patty, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit like that. So you, you need to balance it. Like, there are... Put it this way, last week, for instance, we were away and we had a pitch. So I had to work a bit late. But then on Thursday, because I was going to go off on, on Saturday, first, you know, Friday, I said, I'm going. I have to see him. Yeah. Even if it's the end of the world. Yeah. So team-wise, why even have a rule within the team? Uh, so when I leave, I say, will you die if you don't do it? In most cases, you won't, right? Yeah, but there are, or if they, you know, if they do, there, there are sometimes weeks where we need to work really late. Then you know, give them back as a due time. It's not you know, get people to take a few extra days off from the additionally on top of their holidays. Um, I wouldn't say it's a hard stop. Like to say, not five thirty. I have to leave. Yeah. But if it's a pitch, for instance, a very important piece of business or something that I can't wait. Yeah. Or that will be that will create more problems for me over the <laughs> coming weeks. Yeah. I'll sit down and do it. But I built, I think I, I don't believe there are many nine to five jobs that exist now. So I adapt it to my life. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, some, I mean, my boss, my boss is lovely as well. So she gives me the freedom to, to do what I need to do as long as I deliver the end goal. Mm -hmm. It could be sometimes I go in late work till late, yeah. or it could be sometimes I um, go in very early, leave early, so I adapt it to my life, So, but in most cases I usually come back home, spend my time with him while he's awake for instance, and then in the evening I still carry yeah. on and do so things that are necessary. Finding that flexibility yeah. around, around it's your like time. Adapting it around your life rather than yeah. um, you know, trying to stick to a 9 to 5, 9 to 5 or 6 or whatever regime and we're not, yeah. we're not public sector workers. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think yeah. some companies still a bit behave like they that. They still exist. They're still old school. But I think as long as my view is that, but that's, again, management versus yeah. leadership. If you trust, if you build that trust with your employees, yeah. you tell them what they need to achieve the end goal, let them do it. Yeah. Like for me, and again, it really depends from company to company, from team to team. It's about building trust with them, and like myself, like my boss, and she knows that I need to do certain things. Yeah. But she knows I will do it one my way, and she lets me do it. The same with my team as well. I tell them if they have a meeting somewhere, I said, don't come back. Yeah. There's no point. You don't need to be in the office. You've got internet. Sit down. Don't waste traveling one hour back. Um, completely agree. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, we're going back uh, slightly to the topic of your work, as mm. in what you do for work. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, such an interesting concept, you know, when we talk about media and advertising and all the audiences that are out there to be reached by the brands we work for, we work yeah. with. Um, 
how can we make sure that we're actually reaching all the relevant audiences and slash how can we make sure that we're not missing out on a really relevant audience that maybe we're not mm. reaching you know across normal tv or on the evening standard this and that so um it would be interesting to sort of uh, you know and absolutely with no client names just yeah. to understand a couple of success stories or and on the other hand also so success stories would be one uh, just like one one example and then on the other hand also understand in your opinion what is it that a lot of brands are still doing wrong with these audiences as in mm. the, sort of the stereotypes of oh yeah i know i can reach them there but actually doing your job you know that well that that is a mistake that's a misconception mm. actually you should be doing this so success story and sort of best best advice <sighs> to reaching these audiences well i'll start with the second one best advice but before jumping into the advertisers or brands mm. themselves, I always had a love and hate relationship with agencies, mm-hmm. even when we worked together. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we probably talk, if, I mean, you, you could ever even look at creative agencies, it's the same. We talk about diversity and inclusion tons. When you, when you look at their day-to-day work, it, I mean, within creative industries, it's a bit more advanced, but especially media agencies, keep talking about it, but yet our work is not diverse. What I mean by that is I am, um, I'm a Muslim, Turkish with a bit of Kurdish and Iranian in me, then my wife is mixed, my son is lost citizen <laughs> out of the world. But people have different behaviours. So what I hate it, for instance, every every time people come to me, oh, give me Christmas, Christmas insight, give me, you know it as well, give me Easter um, insight. But no one ever thought about, what about Ramadan, what about Eid, what about Diwali? You know, that might sound very stereotypical. So it's trying to reach another audience, but by putting the same glasses of the usual Christmas, Easter. Think about if if your work is, it's a bit like... if. If you had TGI trainings when we were working together, I remember the times. If you didn't use it as an example, mm. you would have forgotten it after a month or two, right? Yeah. It's a bit like that. If you don't make your work diverse, how do you make your workforce diverse? Yeah. So what I mean by that is, if if a brief comes in around togetherness, for instance. Well, Ramadan and Eid, they're all about togetherness. So if it's a food brand. I mean, there are, like, Ram, t- take Ramadan as an example, it's, I think it's, uh, what did they spend? I think in 2015 alone, they brought like 100, and 100 million uplift to supermarkets. Mm-hmm. It is considered the, f- the third biggest event after Christmas and Easter. And I still know supermarkets that do nothing around that. Yeah. And they spend millions in, in, in um, Christmas. The advantage of it, I think there are two angles. One is coming back to the brand side. It's about whether your media mix is diverse. You know, people have dual media consumption. They, like I said, they might consume their own native media and they might also read Metro. Yeah. But if you're just sticking to Metro, A, you're not going to reach all of them. Not everyone reads them. B, you'll never be able to build the frequency because they have a dual... Yeah. media and the other element is that they have dual lifestyles I think it's a piss off when we know I still celebrate Christmas because it's the best time to get the family together mm-hmm. right no one works <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time if a brand goes into do something around Eid for instance it makes me happy I am absolutely more likely to buy from them yeah uh, and there are commercial benefits as well, as well as... Um, but well, what really annoys me or amuses me is like most of the brands make most of their money from London. They even uh, live in London. I mean, London itself, and that's 2011 state, 55% of the population are from a non-white British background. Mm-hmm. But yet they don't think about it. So my suggestion is, even when you get a brief or start looking at it, because even when you become second or third generation of, of a certain ethnicity, leave stuff with you, whether it's, you know, a stereotypical essay in South Asians will still like a bit of Bollywood music, mm. or whether it's 
Um, they're more into families. I even joke with my colleagues, for instance. I, I, I have to see my... Um, have to sounds like a forceful, <laughs> but um, my in-laws mm-hmm. three, four times a week sometimes. Mm-hmm. If, you know, at least twice a week I see them. Mm-hmm. But that's unusual to a British... Yeah. Typical British family, isn't it? Once a year. Yeah, once a year, <laughs> Christmas, yeah. Exactly. Um, but that brings, you know, differences in people. Your, how you value families or how, what you eat. There's so many differences and you need to think about them. And I think people miss the tra- trick by not thinking about ethnicity or, or religion. And from our sector perspective, you know, we, we keep doing target audiences based on age or the chocolate or X, Y, Z. You know, you, you die, cut and dice data based on socio-demographic levels, um, age, but ethnicity is probably one of the things that that is a really key indicator of how people will behave. behave. Yeah. Uh, and I think even more than potentially age to a certain extent or for certain categories. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, linking it back to why I'm here, I, I never thought I was going to come back to media. Mm-hmm. So it was like research is my, you know, I love research, I'll stay with it. You know, a lot of companies do lip, they talk, but they don't yeah. walk to talk. So when I found out about this role, I was like, oh, is it real or is it another tick box? Mm-hmm. Um, then I realized, you know, it's real, big support from the management, and, and they want this to grow. And it's something that I love. So it's a bit of, um, and I love doing it because I also see it as a, a bit of a bit of doing good. Because yeah. in our sector, it's very hard to feel good about what you're doing sometimes. Yeah. You know, uh, but doing this, I feel like we're, I'm trying to integrate and be inclusive of people. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there's a commercial side of it, but it's balancing my life. It's, uh, yeah, it's just not about the profit. Yeah, yeah, it's not just about sales, or it's not just about trying to sell a piece of shit of shit chocolate to someone. It's, yeah. it's, um, there's a bit more to it. So that's what I love about it. What um, l- Last question is, what would you say, as in if you have one, one category of brand in mind, as in... Mm like a success story, a campaign that uh, they maybe run uh, with you and with OMG. Um, <coughs> what, what kind of stuff was it, as in what, what kind of campaign was it? Well, there are so many. Uh, I mean, since I, since we joined, it's, it's a, a bit of a big, big up for myself, mm-hmm. and obviously I couldn't do it with my team, especially Josh in my team. So we went from one award to seven awards, and... Uh, um, a little work for Sainsbury's, um, Rubicon. Um, Can we find some of those awards? <laughs> in, uh, I imagine some of the stuff is linked, so I'll, I'll link so some of the stuff to the podcast episode. So yeah, yeah definitely. Work. I can share you a link as well. I think one that I'm, I haven't asked the client, but I'll go for it because it's on public domain, uh, was something that I'm very, very proud of was um, for Childline, mm-hmm. which is a, a charity for... Yeah, a lot of people know it. So we... Um, I seriously pushed the boundaries with, with, with the work. It was probably the most difficult campaign that I've ever done. So I had this crazy idea, which is obviously younger target audience um, from different ethnic backgrounds. So it was around discrimination, you know, with the terrorist attacks and stuff. There were a lot of stuff for Muslim women, you know, being bullied, blah, blah, um, acid attacks, all of that. So we decided instead of just getting a creative, putting paid media behind it, let's do something more innovative. And um, we, the idea we had, you know, there a lot of them are into grime music. Those young audiences who are more likely to be discriminated. We said, why don't we find artists from different backgrounds, and get them to create songs, mm-hmm. bespoke to this project. So we partnered with a channel called SBTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank is like, this is not my cup of tea. Uh, I'll, I'll show you when we have dinner as well. Um, so literally, we, it was a very long process in terms of picking the talent, finding the talent who can actually write within a short time, mm-hmm. 
but the campaign went really, really well, amazing. So we've um, we just won an award at BIMA, which is British Interactive Media mm-hmm. Awards uh, for communication, women communication and content category, uh, conscience. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it was against big guys as well, like um, Blue Planet. You probably watched it, BBC. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel, I feel like it's a documentary. I'm, I'm, I'm limited to Netflix um, and Prime. But yeah, so stuff. we created like different uh, songs, playlists within their um, channels, and then we mm. promoted with talents, uh, social media channels. Mm. It was like a very integrated, like a, one of the campaigns where we got the partner, media partner, creative. Yeah, everything fit together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was it, there was a lot of learnings from it. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it was one of the most difficult, probably the most difficult thing. But I, I am quite proud of it because it's, if you listen to it and if you're, if you're from a different um, ethnic or religious background than the norm, it really touches yeah. and, and, and shows. It's like giving the mic to people who are affected by it. That's very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I just chatted Frank. No. <laughs> I guess that was the purpose that's of it, right? Yeah, just go exactly. with the flow. So yeah. We love a good chat. Yeah. Oh, no, that's awesome. Um, mm. I mean, f- from my side, I think uh, we could continue for a long yeah. time, probably, but um, do you have any questions for me? Ooh. <laughs> I don't, no. did I, I mean... Silence. No, no I'm, I'm just trying to think what I, no, how, what about myself? How do you think I've changed? I know yeah. we don't work day to day basis. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's a good question. <laughs> no pressure. Um, so I mean, it, it's easy to say what what I think in terms of when we work together in the inside team. I think, and this is also, the, I know that that's the same thing that all the other members of the team felt and still feel that um, you're very supportive and you were, like you said yourself before, you were very people-oriented. And mm-hmm. I mean, it might also have to do with the fact that at some point, like we weren't necessarily like busy at the maximum of our capacity as a team, yeah. so you had more time to that. And it might be that had the team been 100% busy, mm-hmm. maybe there wouldn't have been any time for that. But the reality was that back then, as in, the fact that you know you took the time for I think it was like monthly, if not even bi-weekly catch-ups with everyone, and we had a team of I think around seven to eight people. Um, obviously, that was like really massively appreciated, mm. especially you know working in MediaCom where I think the the, the law was like people first, better results, and mm. it was a great experience. But I didn't always feel that it was a uh, an attitude always lived in mm. the culture of the company. But I saw it with you, so that was great. And I think in terms of, I mean, when you were saying how I changed jobs and how I sort of, you know, took some risks also by making jumps, you know, in some cases I felt, I mean, although you always have a choice, but I felt that from a professional point of view at some points I'd, I didn't have a choice and mm-hmm. I wanted to do this and I said, okay, let's do that. But as in, I've also observed it with you and the fact that, you know, I had, in the sense, my first manager and a role, <laughs> role model. No, it's true, role model of seeing someone who, Maybe to a certain degree, like what you said, maybe even too much like jumping yeah, yeah. jobs from one, I think, like from one to the other. But you know, gathering these experiences, always putting yourself out there, and that's completely the opposite of some other some other people I know, really good friends with who are in the same job for the last five, six, seven years, doing what they've done for the last five, seven years. And I'm like, okay, you're great at this, it's obvious, but don't you want to, you know, push yourself, mm. do something else, learn something new. And you're on the opposite spectrum of that, yeah. so you always push yourself, you always try to do something new. I mean, on a professional level, obviously, I, what I see is obviously the, the, the LinkedIn stuff <laughs> and all the awards that you guys have been winning, which are amazing. I'm going to share some links uh, on the podcast yeah. if uh, someone listening wants to have a look. Um, and from your stories too. Uh, generally speaking, I think obviously on a personal level, I see the, the impact yeah. that Zafar uh, has had on, yeah. uh, on you and on uh, Wea. And just how, I mean, you've said it, but it also radiates from you, how it just changes everything. Mm. And this is pretty much what I see. There's a lot of uh, people that uh, we know, a lot of friends that have, are having babies, like literally babies being born all the time, <laughs> over the last yeah. six months. Like it's yeah. a continuum popping out babies. Yeah. Um, and I see that all of them, the, you know, when you talk to them, it's like, oh, your priorities really shift and you have a very, very different sort of mindset mm. on, what's important, what's not important, because at the end of the day, yes, the pitch is important, work is important, but you know, if your kid has an allergy and you need to solve that, yeah. that, that comes first, obviously. Um, so I think, and that 
really comes through. Uh, like, <laughs> well, we, we, you can see it when we talk about it. When you talk about it, it's uh, it's quite mm. obvious, and it's also very sweet. Uh, like you're so in love with Zafar. <laughs> By the way, the other day Sarah uh, called me on video call, and it was it made me very happy because it was Zafar all smiley. <laughs> and to be fair, like I've rarely seen a baby that smiles so often. Yeah. Like. No, you so would have seen again. He's still the same. It's not, it's not more. He's just he's smiling yeah. all the time, restless. Um, so yeah, I would say that. And one thing that I, sorry, one very important thing that I was about to forget that I always sort of took in because, in, let me rephrase it. One really good thing I think is the fact that you always speak your mind when you yeah. want to say something. So the yeah. point sometimes yeah. maybe that too, too, much. too much, especially you know in a British culture where you need to be polite and yeah. you need to like. You, I feel I've always felt in the last five years that you can speak your mind and people will appreciate it, but only if you have a certain kind of relationship with people, not with everyone. You can do it. Yeah. Whereas as an Italian, I speak my mind to everyone. As a Turkish person, I think you speak your mind yeah. to everyone, and I think that this is also why we got along since the beginning yeah. because it's like no bullshit. No just bullshit. Uh, exactly. Right? <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's sort of also what what I find inspiring on some of the stories that you've told me uh, of uh, yeah of how you just you know independently from oh that person's really high or that person's below that person's on my same level like I, I give it to them straight and to me in previous jobs I've had sort of I've had uh, instances where I've done that and I've been I've been burned <laughs> by that uh, because that was not appreciated and it it almost created a bit of a um, opposite reaction of me trying to you know what even if I think something I'm, I'm not gonna let it out yeah. and that lasted for eight months in programmatic Confront <laughs> confrontation is not yeah um, it's not a thing here yeah but it I, is it's not yeah, they yeah everyone's they, cup of tea. exactly but I think that one of the sort of pacts I've done with myself since I've been here at video beats is that if I don't like something I'm I'm gonna say it and I really like working here because uh, in management, the culture, I've been told so many times, look, just because I'm the MD, like, it doesn't mean that you can tell me that you think this is shit mm. or not. I want you to tell me. And I feel a lot of times I've heard this already, but I feel that in this case, it's just, it's not just a lip service, but that people actually mean it. Now, if they're going to act on it or not, if it's like, okay, this is your opinion, I respect yeah. it, but I'm not going to change my way. That's another topic, of course, but... The fact that, you know, and probably also because it's a German company, uh, Video is based in, uh, the main offices are in Hamburg, and I think uh, the German mentality in that sense is similar to Italians, very straightforward, giving yeah. it to you straight, sometimes even a bit too much, so you're like, oh, this is a bit rude. They're, they're, they're more maybe. processy than you guys. Yeah, <laughs> probably because I've been five years in London, I think, yeah. oh, that was rude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So then I think I go back to my Roman roots, and I think, oh, actually, that was fine. Um, but I think it just simplifies everything mm. and it makes life so much easier on, on you yeah. because you're now able to say, you know what, this I don't like and I'm going to tell you and it's out. Whereas I've had eight months of in my past job of many, many things that I wanted to say and that I kept them in. I remember sometimes, you know, going on roof terrace, like yeah. <laughs> bowling out, breathing out. I was like, fine, I'm not going to say anything. It's not worth it. But to you listeners out there, I think if you have something you need to share, with your manager, with your colleagues, I think it's always worth it getting out because you do more damage keeping it in. And that's yeah. the thing that I sort of observed in you over the last years. I mean, even back then in Mediacom, and it's something that I've sort of taken on board also based on my experience. Yeah. So, yeah. Wicked. Wicked. Nice. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining, sir. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, thanks Frank. Oh, yeah, that was thanks lovely. Thanks so much. I've been yeah. uh, waiting for the podcast with Sarah <laughs> for a long time. Uh, I, hope I, hope it, I hope it was worth it. <laughs> it was. It was definitely. <laughs> uh, I'm going to share some links for you guys, as in to find some of the resources we were talking about in terms of uh, links of awards. Um, and obviously, if there's any questions, any comments, please comment yeah, here on go SoundCloud. For it. Yeah. Send me questions. I'll pop them over to Serhat uh, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Thanks so much for making it, guys. And Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Bye.